We are going to read Psalm 24, page 458 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your hands, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mel. Uh, I remember sitting through an interview maybe about 10 years ago for a software company that I was applying at. I handed in my very polished resume. I was well prepared for all the questions, felt like I was executing brilliantly. Um, but I, what I did not realize until about halfway through the interview, um, or at least at the end of the interview, that my hands were kind of like balled up like this and fists in my lap as I was sitting there across the desk from my potential future boss. I was just sitting there the whole time like this, I guess, affected by nerves. I'm not sure. I assume that's what it was because I don't normally sit like this, but I was that day for some reason. Uh, the interview ended, and I was not prepared for what happened next. So my potential future boss stands up behind her desk and she grabs uh, my resume with one hand, and then she extends her other hand to shake my hand. And I looked down at my hands and realized that throughout the 30 or 40 minute interview, my hands had not come unballed, and so that they were quite sweaty on the inside of my palms. Um, it, and my hands were quite moist, and there was nothing I could do about it in that moment. So like a man, I stuck my hand right out there and I shook her hand. And as my slippery hand slid right into position, I thought for sure I'd lost the job. Uh, I kid you not, as my boss walked out of the office, I saw her doing this little number as she, as she walked out. She tried to be covert and secretive about it, but I caught her and we've laughed about it in the years since. Uh, somehow I did land that job. And some three or four other people here in the church have actually gotten jobs at that same software company, despite my sweaty handshake that day. Um, part of what is happening in the interview process and when they're reviewing your resume is they're checking to see if they can trust you to do the job right and well. Uh, can they trust you to do the job? The resume and the interview at the end of the day, end of the day is about gauging trust in you, gauging trust. 
Usually on these resumes, on your resume probably, there's this bullet-pointed section that details, uh, lists off some of your accomplishments that you have had in your professional career. And those bullet points are typically there to demonstrate that uh, you are worthy of your potential future employer's trust. Uh, in that section, you're trying to persuade them that you are worthy of their trust, that you are the ideal candidate. Uh, Psalm 24 is a snapshot of that bullet point section on God's resume. All right? Uh, here, uh, here's today's really simple big idea that I want to leave you with. A big idea is kind of like an encapsulation of the text that is hopefully portable for you to take home with you and think about and meditate on. Here it is. Jesus' resume makes him worthy of your trust. Jesus' resume makes him worthy of your trust. And there are three specific things here that David highlights from Jesus' resume that should encourage us today and that should persuade us to trust him today. First, Jesus is creator and owner. Second, Jesus is exclusive and inclusive. And then third, Jesus is warrior and king. I think Psalm 24 is Jesus' resume, even though Jesus doesn't actually ever show up in Psalm 24. Let me tell you partly why I think that. Usually, usually once or twice during our summers and our summer in the Psalms series, I use the picture that I asked Ellie to draw back when she was seven. Uh, she did great with it and explains, I think, what's going on here. If that doesn't explain Psalm 24, I don't know what does, right? That was a joke. Um, if you have ever been at the base, if you've ever been hiking out uh, in a mountain range or something, and you've been at the base of a large mountain that's situated within distance of an even larger mountain behind it, you've probably experienced a bit of what happens in the Psalms. If you're at the foot of a mountain that has a higher mountain just behind it, you may not even realize it because all you can see is this big monstrous thing that's in front of you. You see this mountain, but you don't realize that there's one taller just behind it. But if you were to climb the smaller mountain, you'd soon realize that there's something bigger just beyond that mountain. There was something bigger just beyond that mountain the whole time. Even if you couldn't see it at first at the base of that, uh, that first front mountain. So maybe this will help. When this psalm was originally penned, David was sitting at the base of that theoretical front mountain. When David was writing Psalm 24, he could only see the mountain right in front of him. And that mountain was beautiful in its own right. Uh, that's where we find the meaning to the original audience that read Psalm 24 thousands of years ago. This psalm did have meaning in its time and context for those people before Jesus. It would have meant something very important to them for that time. But there's also an ultimate meaning that lay beyond that original first smaller mountain that laid outside of their full understanding probably at that time. In our example here today on screen behind me, beautifully colored by Ellie, it's uh, that other more beautiful mountain just behind it that encapsulated the ultimate meaning of this psalm. So David probably didn't fully realize it at the time, that although the resume he penned here did include descriptions about God, and that's what we're going to go through here, it includes descriptions about God, but it was actually more specific than just descriptions about God in general. This psalm actually points to Jesus a thousand years before Jesus. This is just a lesson in reading the Bible faithfully from cover to cover, from beginning to end. This is how we should read all of the Old Testament. If you're new to the Christian faith or you're new to the Bible, the Old Testament doesn't, Jesus never uh, by name shows up in the Old Testament. 
But what we learn from the New Testament is that every story, every poem, every idea or chapter in the Old Testament is meant to be the little mountain that you scale so that you can see the bigger mountain that is Jesus. Jesus hinted at this idea with his disciples as they walked down that Emmaus road in Luke 24. Here's what he said. Here is what Luke says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. And so the scriptures, the scriptures that are referred to here, to them at that point would have been the Old Testament. So Jesus is going through the Old Testament and he's, and he's working through them and he's explaining how all of that first half of the Bible points to him. So that means before Jesus ever steps on stage in the New Testament, the whole book is about him in the Old Testament. This should impact how you and I read our Bibles. Moses and the prophets and Psalm 24 were smaller, beautiful mountains in their own right that had to be scaled to see the biggest and the best mountain, Jesus. So with this in mind, let's climb the original terrain of Psalm 24 so that we can see the bigger, beautiful terrain, more beautiful terrain behind it, and that's Jesus. And the reason I said that I think that Psalm 24 is a reference or speaks to or speaks about Jesus is because the New Testament unpacks verse 2 for us. Look at verse 2. It says, For he has founded it, the earth, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Well, the New Testament brings verse 2 into focus and identifies which member of the Trinity had, uh, did the lion's share of the creating work, the creative work. This is why I think Psalm 24 is Jesus' resume. Look at John 1, 1 to 3 on screen with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here it is. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If you know anything about the book of John, this word terminology is in direct reference to Jesus. We don't have time to unpack that or detail that today. We do have a whole uh, sermon series on the website uh, from the book of John. So if you're interested in that, you can download that sermon from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. But you are made. I am made. So if there was no Jesus, there would be no you. See the end of that verse? It says, without him was not anything made that was made. This is why we sing phrases like, it's your breath in our lungs. It's a simple, poetic way of saying, no Jesus, no me. <laughs> no Jesus, no you. John 1 is saying that the word is Jesus, and Jesus is God, and then it goes further. Think about this. It's complicated. God is the only unmade thing in the entire universe. No one made God. God has always been. So Jesus made everything in the category of made. If Jesus is God, Jesus made everything in the category of made. So there's no way the Son is made because he wouldn't have been there to make himself. All right? Complicated enough for a Sunday morning for you there. Jesus made everything in the category of things that are made, which is everything, so there's no way the Son, no way Jesus is made because he wouldn't have been there to make himself. That's kind of the teaching, the, the foundational teaching behind John 1. So what is the big deal? Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is actually the creator of all things? It's this, because creators are owners. Creators are owners. Ellie created that artwork that I just showed you on screen, and because she created it, she owns it. She gets to do with it 
what she wants. That means she can decide how many clouds are in the sky, what color her shirt is in the picture, or how big the mountains are in the picture. You own your home, so you can paint your walls whatever color you want to paint them. If you're just renting, you can't, right? Why? Because you don't own it. Creators are owners. That's what verse 1 of our psalm says, that Jesus, that God created it all. So that means all the bajillion stars and galaxies and planets that our telescopes can see and all that they cannot see, because there are many that they can't. They are all his. Every grain of sand on the earth, every grain of sand on a planet in the farthest galaxy, they are Jesus's. Every rumbling waterfall, every snow-capped mountain peak, every minuscule snowflake, every hidden algae in the deepest, darkest cave, every unseen rock in the depths of the ocean, every precious stone, every precious metal, and every precious soul. They are all Jesus's. And because Jesus is the creator and the creator of all of it, well, then he is the owner of all of it too. Creators are owners. The earth is his. Look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell within or therein. So as creator, Jesus owns it all and he can do with it whatever he pleases. So bullet point one on that little section of Jesus' resume in Psalm 24 is this. Jesus is creator and owner. Jesus is creator and owner. Why is Jesus worthy of your trust? Because he built you. He created you. He knows what makes you tick, what makes you work and flourish even better than you do. When we think of God as owner, if you're anything like me at least, when we think of him as the owner, I think we can tend to bristle at this kind of idea. God is my owner. When we think of him as being able to dictate all that we do or why we do it or how we do it, I think we can feel like he's a little bit overbearing, too demanding of his fallen creatures. But I think this is a good time to remind ourselves of something. God is not a, because I said so, kind of God. He wants the best for us. That's why he gave us this. More than that, more than wanting the best for us, he knows what is best for us. Because he made us. He knows how we tick and how we flourish and how we work. So Jesus' instructions prevent harm, not happiness. I preach this to ourselves routinely as we live in a world that is more and more drifting away from the truths of this book. Your car manual doesn't tell you how to maintain your car to make you miserable, though it might feel like that sometimes. It instructs you to make life easier on, easier on you, even if it requires you to spend more money and more time on it than you want to. Following those instructions in that manual will save you more time and more money in the long run. God is not a no monster. He is a loving, caring shepherd who wants the best for us, even if we don't always understand it. So when he provides ethical, moral instruction for us, it is not for us to bicker about or to argue with. It's for us to trust the one who made us and knows us the best and knows what's best for us. And this manual is given for your joy and for your flourishing. God wants for us to maximize our human experience it's why he gave us his instruction manual, because he created us, and he owns us, and he wants the best for us. You've got to believe God's heart for you today. God's heart is so for you. So when it references money, we listen to him and not the world. When it references 
sex, we listen to him and not the world. When it references anything, we listen to him and not the world. To gain maximum benefit from the wisdom of God, we must acknowledge and submit to the God who causes the world to work in the way it does. He's upholding it by the word of his power, Colossians 1 says. So we submit ourselves to him, even if we don't always fully understand him. Jesus is your maker, and so he is your owner, and you should trust him. Next, David asks a pretty staggering question. Look at verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? What is this holiness that we've, at least Christians, that we've heard and affirmed probably our entire lives, singing holy, 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 since we were little children? What is holiness? Well, no dictionary is up to the task, really. Holiness, holiness carries us to the very brink of our understanding of who God is. The root meaning of holy just means to cut or to separate. A holy thing is cut off or separated from normal, common use. So growing up, some of us had these kinds of clothes, didn't we? If you grew up like me, some of us had Sunday suits. I still remember my yellow seersucker Sunday suit that was reserved for Sundays. Some of us had Sunday dresses. I did not have one of those. Uh, Some of us had Sunday shoes. And I'm not kidding, I have a friend in my life right now who had Sunday underwear. Underwear that was reserved for Sundays. It was holy underwear, it was Sunday underwear. Sunday things are separated into their own category. And me saying I have a friend that was like that is not me like talking about myself in the third person, okay? (laughs) Just so we're all clear on that. God is separated unto his own category. There is nothing and no one like him. No one fits in that God category except for God himself. That's why David is like, man, who can even make it up to that holy hill? The creator, the owner, who can ascend up to his holy hill? The prophet Isaiah has something to say about this. He tries to express what this holiness looks and feels like to humans from a vision that God gives to him. This is from Isaiah 6. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, take a break here. How do these jaw-dropping creatures respond to being in God's holy presence? What do they call to one another and say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And how does the temple the building in which God is seated. How does the temple respond to being in God's presence? The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. You cannot be cool in God's holy presence. We're just a few weeks away, finally, from Lincoln Financial Field being filled up again. It's going to be great. And it's going to be filled with raucous fans, seeing if they can cheer the Eagles over the edge this year, right? Seeing if they can push them across the edge to a, the threshold to another Super Bowl. So close last year, hopefully we can make it happen this year, right? I wonder if you've ever been to a game. People been to a game at the link before? Not a ton of us, but maybe like 40% of us, yeah? When you and I go to a game at the link, at Lincoln Financial Field, that is sold out, like no seats left in the building. Uh, we look around and say, man, they're all full. The whole house is full, right? I've left sold out games before, 
and said something like, man, that place was rocking tonight. It was so fun. People jumping and screaming and almost like the whole building was shaking. I've been to college football games before where they, the whole stadium is jumping up and down at the same time and the thing is literally going like this and it's a little uh, disconcerting. This is the way it is for our God, only he doesn't mess around with piddly, sold-out stadiums. For God, there aren't any seats left in the entire universe, the entire planet. The glory has filled the whole earth. That's what the angels are chanting there in verse 3. The whole earth is filled with his glory. There is no room for any other glory. No seat is left in the house because the glory of God fills all the seats, filled to capacity. The earth is booming with the praises of our transcendent God, and it is booming in awed reverence. The holy God has Isaiah freaking out completely. And his, Isaiah's response is telling. What does he do when he comes into contact with God's holiness? He says, woe is me, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Interestingly, that's the same language that David uses here in Psalm 24, down in verse 10, to describe Jesus, the king, the Lord of hosts. The ground is shaking. There's this voice booming, holy, holy, holy. The temple is filled with smoke. God's train, like the train of his robe, is billowing up on top of itself, and it's filling the whole room. And all Isaiah can do is say, woe is me, I'm undone. God is too great, he's too dazzlingly holy, too transcendent, too supreme, and so I am damned for sure, woe is me. I'm so unclean when compared with this holy, holy, holy king. Isaiah had seen the dazzling beauty of the same God that we just sung to, that we just prayed to, and he was devastated. Most of us this morning probably had some kind of smile on our face as we contemplated the goodness of God, but Isaiah was freaked out. He was disturbed at this beautiful sight, and sometimes we should be disturbed too. God, though majestic, is frightening. God's holiness should disturb us because it excludes sin. But then how is this? How is this? How does Isaiah make it into the holy place if our psalm today says that only people who make it are those described in verse 4? What sorts of people can ascend the holy hill of God? Look at verse 4. He who has clean hands, that's like what you do, right? And a pure heart, who you are on the inside. Uh, Verse 4 continues. Who does not lift up his soul, the inside again, interior language, soul language, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully what you do and what you say. So inside and outside, interior and exterior. Someone who, inside and out, is full of purity and full of honesty. That's the kind of man, woman, or child who will make it up to the holy hill. The problem is, that's no one ever. No one has that resume. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So how does unclean-lipped, unclean-lipped Isaiah make it in with a holy God? How does he get into that place? Well, God's holiness isn't only exclusive. It's also inclusive. And this helps us transition to Jesus' next description here on his resume. 
Jesus is not just holy, but he's also approachable. And this is the best news in all the earth. Jesus is not just holy and separate. He's also approachable. There is a way to bridge that gap. He's not just exclusive, but inclusive. Let's look at what happens next for Isaiah. Isaiah 6, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. So Isaiah is freaked out, and then what happens? One of the seraphim flies to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The only way an unclean man can make it into the presence of God is to, like Isaiah, have your sin taken away and atoned for. Isaiah's experience here with God is not particularly warm or fuzzy. He desperately wanted to get away from God. Woe is me. Get me out of this place. He was utterly frightened. But it, it, it's, it's the God of the Bible. Isaiah 6 is the God of the Bible. It is your king. This is the one who knows you by name, who has your name written on his heart, scars graven in his hand for you. This God, and this was where it gets almost too good to be true. Like, keep that Isaiah 6 vision of God in your mind. Don't lose sight of that. This is where it gets too good to be true, though, because that is the God who left that throne, surrounded by dazzling creatures, endless glory, infinite might and power. He left that throne to hang naked on a cross for the sins of people like you and me. This God is unfathomably holy, but not just like in his wrath and, and fearsomeness. His love is unfathomably holy. So what that means is it's a unique love. Nobody occupies the space of God's love. No one has ever loved as deeply and as beautifully and as wonderfully as that. And that love gets shown to us. His love and mercy are uncommon and unique. No human before or after has ever shown or received. I shouldn't say received. I have received this kind of love. No one has shown this kind of love. It is utterly unique. And in the gospel, it has been shown to us. It is only because of the life and cross of Jesus that an exclusive God can include us. There is only one road that leads from where you're at right now to God's holy hill. One road, and it is paved with the faithful obedience of King Jesus. The psalmist asks, verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And he answers, verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Well, that's not me, and that's not you, so we ain't going. Unless we have a substitute. And it's like, kind of like I said last week, we were using resume language last week as well. I think we as Christians can sometimes rush too quickly just to the cross. We forget that there are like 30 plus years before Jesus ever dies on the cross. Why didn't Jesus just show up on Good Friday, die real quick, rise on Sunday, and then like Baal, ascend 40 days later? Why didn't he do that? Why did he come as a baby and live 30 full years? Because he was writing your resume. He was writing my resume. He was, the living, he was living the perfectly righteous life so that he could apply that perfect righteousness to your account and to my account to legally transition us from being excluded to being included. By faith, we can be treated by God as if we've accomplished what Jesus did. What? In other words, we're given an identity, a resume that is not our own. It's like 
presenting a resume and, uh, that is not yours and getting hired for it. Who can ascend God's holy hill? The people that are described in verse 4. Who's the only one ever with that resume? Jesus prints off his resume and he says, here, when the Father asks me, asks you, what business do you have here in my kingdom? You hand the Father this. The only way you can transition from being excluded from God's presence to included in God's presence is through faith, embracing the identity of another, the righteousness of God in Jesus applied to your account. The most amazing reality in the world right now in this very moment is that what God demands from you, Jesus does for you. What God demands from you, Jesus does for you. Jesus maintained perfect purity and employed perfect honesty in your place and in mine. But before we transition to this last part of the psalm, I do want to say that sometimes I wonder if we've gotten, wait for it, if we've gotten a little too gospel-centered. Don't kick me out of the church just yet, okay? But I do wonder if we've gotten too gospel-centered and we actually lose sight of the fact that there actually is a gritty calling on our lives from the scriptures, from the holy God. David didn't just write this as an impossible set of demands that we have no hope of ever achieving. He wrote it as something to aspire to and to strain toward honesty and purity inside and out. I think as gospel-centered Christians, and listen, we should be gospel-centered Christians, but as gospel-centered Christians, uh, we like to think and say, there's nothing I can do or say that would ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we should all give a hearty amen to that. Praise God. This is true. We believe that and we hold to that daily as we wrestle with our sin. However, this does not negate the real call here to live holy lives inside and out, to employ honesty and purity as verse 4 calls us to. So I just want to encourage us to radically obey the calling of this psalm too. Hebrews 12 uh, flattened me this week, really sobered me. Listen to this. Strive for the holiness, hear it, without which no one will see the Lord. Whoa. Are you striving for holiness inside and out, pressing for it, killing sin, embracing the way of Jesus? Does your eye linger on the page when it should look away? Does your tongue shy away from the truth of God's word when it is costly to hold to in the workplace? Are you tempted to shrug off these weekend gatherings when God's calling on your life is to be faithful to gather with God's people? Does verse 4 even remotely describe you? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, is that you? He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Is your tongue marked by purity and honesty? Is your heart what's fueling your tongue marked by purity and honesty? The calling here, the draw here is toward holiness. Rejoice in Jesus' resume in, your, resume in your place. It does not get better than that. But repent of your sins too and keep repenting and keep pressing toward the holiness without which you will not see God. God is incredibly exclusive, but thank Jesus, he's beautifully inclusive too. And here we find the final description of Jesus' resume, and it's another reason for you to trust him this morning. Finally, Jesus is warrior and king. Creator, owner, exclusive, inclusive, warrior and king. No one is real certain about the circumstances that uh, David is writing into or that caused him to write this psalm, but most scholars believe that David wrote it as an anthem to sing 
when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back to the city of Jerusalem after a time of war, or after a time of battle, particularly after a time of victory on the battlefield. So the troops would take the Ark with them because the Ark symbolized God's presence with them. And so when it returned to the city, it was almost as if God himself was returning to the city. God the king returning to the city symbolized by this Ark of the Covenant. So that liturgical back and forth that we see there in verses 7 to 10 uh, is meant to lift their weary heads and accelerate their tired souls. It's such a powerful, victorious crescendo to this anthem. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, verse 8. Who is this king? Verse 9. Lift up your heads, verse 10. Who is this king? Back and forth liturgy here. So imagine the army has just trudged up the hill to the city of Jerusalem. And they've made their way to the city gates, which are still shut. And the general, just outside these gates, shouts, Lift up your heads, O gates! First of all, gates don't have heads, so there's definitely some poetry happening here, right? Kind of like when all the inanimate objects in Beauty and the Beast come to life. Picture that kind of uh, poetry. But Jesus, his creator and owner, he can animate whatever inanimate objects he wants to. Luke 19 tells us that if we don't praise him, even the very rocks are going to cry out and praise him. The point is that Jesus is worthy of all of this. It's, it's poetry. Even the gates want to praise our king. And the psalm ends with that mysterious little word there, selah, which most scholars believe just means something like, wow, think of that. Gates singing the praises of the king, lifting up their heads for the king of glory, for Jesus himself. And so the army is there standing at the gate with the ark in tow, the presence of God. And the general shouts, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the gatekeeper from the other side of the gate shouts back, hey, who is this king of glory? And the general shouts back, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, because they're coming back from victory. And the general shouts again, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The gatekeeper responds, verse 8, who is this king of glory? And the general shouts back again, oh, it's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. This is no Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus, the warrior king. Listen to how John describes Jesus, the warrior, in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You don't serve, we don't serve a tepid, wimpy king. You serve a mighty king who is glorious and mighty in battle because 
his resume says, mighty in battle, you should trust him. As we close, I have I've never done this before, but I stumbled across an old Scottish preacher's sermon on this text this past week, and I decided that I just couldn't improve upon it. Um, so I'm going to let him carry us to the finish line here. I won't embarrass myself with a lame Scottish accent. I've done that once with a British accent, and I will never do it again. Um, but I do... Uh, I do... Was that a... No, it was an Australian accent, wasn't it? It was, it was uh, the guy from Lost. I can't remember his name. Whatever. No accent this morning is the point, okay? Desmond is who I was trying to think of. Um, I, I do want to read this for you, though. It's very powerful and captivating to me this week. He describes the Lord Jesus stepping out of eternity into time. Maybe even close your eyes as you, as you hear this description of Jesus. Jesus clothed himself in human flesh and lived down here for 33 and a half years. And during that period of time, he won victory after victory over the world and the flesh and the devil. Every form of temptation was pressed upon him and presented to him. Satan tested him and tried him, but it was all in vain. He was the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Satan had him betrayed and manhandled and mauled. He had him scourged to the bone and crowned with thorns and took him out to Calvary's hill and nailed him to a cross of wood, and they gathered around to mock him while he died. And all of a sudden, Satan realized his mistake because he urged him to come down from the cross. Ah, but it was all in vain, you know. He was the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. He defeated Satan every time, not once in thought or deed, whether as a babe or as a child or as a teenager or as a man, whether in the home or in the classroom or in the synagogue or at the workbench or treading the highways and byways of his native land, never once did Satan succeed in winning even so much as the ghost of a victory. He was the Lord, strong and mighty. He was the Lord, mighty in battle. When it was all over, they took him down from the cross and they placed him in Joseph's tomb and rolled the stone against the door, and all the might of imperial imperial Rome put its seal on that tomb. But it was all in vain. Vainly they seal the dead, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they watch his bed, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose the victor over a dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. Why? Because he was the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So he stayed around for 40 days, appearing here and appearing there, and then having proved himself alive by many infallible proofs, he gathered up that little band of excited disciples and marched them out through the gates of the city, down across the valley of the Kidron, past the Garden of Gethsemane, and on to the brow of the Mount of Olives. And then he raised his hands in parting benediction and began slowly and majestically to ascend toward the sky. The stunned disciples stood there watching him ascend. The last thing they saw were the prints of the nails and the soles of his feet. Then came the cloud and wrapped around him and they saw him no more. They didn't see what happens next. And this is what this Scottish preacher claims here, or at least how he imagines it, okay? Jesus' battle is done. He's ascending into the city, 
And much like those soldiers I described a moment ago, the Lord Jesus ascended the star road to glory and arrived before the pearly gates of that celestial city, like those soldiers arriving at Jerusalem, the city. He stood there and he said, lift up your heads, O you gates, and the king of glory shall come in. And the watcher at the gate looked through and he saw a man standing there in a battered human body. And he said, who is this king of glory? And the Lord Jesus showed his pierced hands and his wounded side. And he said, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. So they opened up the gates and they let him in. And here's where he really takes some poetic license. And he went down Hallelujah Avenue, past Amen Square, and along Hosanna Highway, and up past Beulah Boulevard, until he came to the throne of God, and then he sat down at God's right hand in heaven. Jesus is the Lord, strong and mighty. He is the Lord, mighty in battle. He is your creator and your owner. You should check out the owner's manual if you haven't in a while. He loves you. He wants the best for you. God is exclusive, but by Jesus' resume, you can be included. Jesus is a warrior king, but we're fighting battles now that he's already won. The application this morning is just to be impressed with Jesus' resume. Deepen your faith. Deepen your trust. Admire him. Trust him. Follow him. Love him. Jesus' resume as creator, owner, includer, warrior, and king. Make him worthy of your trust. Selah. Wow. Think about that. Lou's going to come up and pray for us now. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that your son is perfect and we stand behind his resume. Thank you that your word is perfect, sure, and right. And Lord, as it has been proclaimed to us, we pray that you would take your word and revive our souls and make us wise unto holiness and salvation. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take your word and cause our hearts to rejoice with awe and wonder, and our eyes would be open to your marvelous truth that we've heard. We ask that you would nurture in us a continued hunger and thirst for you and for your precious word and for your amazing Son. May we desire your glory, your delight, more than gold, more than holiness, more than honey. Lord, we ask that your spirit would search our hearts and take your word that we've heard and expose our hidden faults, that you would help us, O oh Lord, to discern our errors and our idols. May your Holy Spirit convict us of arrogant and shameless sins so that sin would have no dominion over us. Lord, we praise you and thank you that through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice and his resume, we stand blameless before you, and we call you Abba, our dear Father. And now let the truth, 
that our pastor has proclaimed become the meditation of our heart, which is acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.